Well, it is a great joy and a privilege to be with you. Uh, I've been able to uh, follow your ministry from a distance for the 10 years because of that relationship between Carissa and Liesel and uh, also some relationships that I have. I appreciate your pastors. Uh, there's one I've known for approximately 30 years now. Uh, so I've known Pastor Will since we were in Bible college together. Uh, so I have some stories. And... Uh, <laughs> For the right amount of, you know, resources, I will give those to you if you'd like to hear those. Uh, it's been a joy to see what God has done at this church, to follow in that way. Um, also, uh, a few years ago now, uh, about when COVID first hit, uh, we uh, as a church from Virginia Beach Colonial Baptist Church sent our youth pastor at the time uh, out to this ministry. His name was Paul Campbell. And uh, so Paul uh, has faithfully served, I think, in this congregation for several months. And then plant, he's been a part of a church plant team in Logan, Utah. Of course, I don't need to tell you that. Uh, but our church has partnered with him, still partner with him financially and through prayer. Uh, our church has sent, I, I think we were doing the math, four or five families uh, have left their occupation and livelihood and location in Virginia Beach and have come over to Logan, Utah to help reach people with the gospel of grace. And so it's been a joy and a privilege to serve in that way and, and to see what God is doing here in many of these ways. Well, I'm going to be speaking through a key text in the gospel of Mark. Um, as uh, Pastor Lucas said, you could turn to Mark chapter 9. Uh, there are uh, five passages in Mark's gospel that mention prayer. If you were to do a study of Mark's gospel, you just type in the keyword for prayer you would find five texts. Well, we're going to preach on four, four of those texts, and I'm going to bring a fifth one in this morning uh, as a way of illustrating what Jesus was committed to. As we consider these four texts, we'll consider one text per service, so one today, one Monday night, one Tuesday night, one Wednesday night. And then I'll also talk to you about what I think is the predominant lesson that we can learn from each passage about prayer as we start into this new year. When I was much younger, still a teenager, I had the opportunity to learn a bit more about what genuine prayer was like. I was a freshman at Bible college, overwhelmed by being there. I went to Bible college in the north woods of Wisconsin, and the whole experience was unusual for me. We had opening services, and uh, the president of the college invited students. Uh, he, he just mentioned this once in passing, but he invited students to come to a special prayer time before the service. And so, as a freshman, overwhelmed, not knowing what to do, I just thought this would be good for me to go to. Well, again, I think he just mentioned it in passing because as I went to the prayer time, there were actually just two students there. The prayer time was supposed to be in a large room, and and so because there were only two students there, they moved us to this small little room, room 212 in, the, uh, in the, the building there. And this room was so small, you could have, there was a, a teaching lectern, and there were six desk chairs, and that's all you could fit in the room. And so the way this went is uh, the evangelist speaker was there, and the president of the Bible college was there, and two students. I'm sure the other one was Will, uh, by the way, Pastor Will. Right, uh, probably not. He was probably on a team, you know, chasing uh, Christy around somewhere around the world, <laughs> knowing 
will at that time. But me, me and another student, we were praying, and uh, I was just overwhelmed by the prayer. These were, these were godly men, elderly men who were mature in the faith. They had seen God move in ways that I, I had never even imagined. They were well-seasoned in prayer, and I felt like a prayer pygmy. So I was greatly intimidated, but I learned from them some things about effective prayer. In our passage this morning, we will learn from someone greater, someone far greater than those two preachers. We will learn from Jesus himself about what prayer involves, the effective conditions of prayer. Now, as we start into this passage, uh, we turn here and we see what I think is in Mark 9, uh, 14 through 29, something I would call the priority of prayer, the priority of prayer. This passage we'll learn in the account of the exorcism of a demon from a young boy. We will learn the value that Christ puts on prayer. In between two predictions of his own death, in this text, at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus takes some time to minister to the 12 disciples. And to do so, he breaks them up into two groups. If you read the first part of Mark chapter 9, you see that he takes three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, to minister to them. There, these three must learn that Jesus is unlike any other person who's ever lived. Even Moses and Elijah don't compare to this one. Christ is a greater prophet in the form of Moses, who is God's anointed son, and he is the king. After making that lesson on the Mount of Transfiguration with the three, next, Jesus comes down from the mount and enters the real world below to teach the other, three, or the other nine disciples. In a sense, you could say he leaves the glory and the glow and the heavenly voice up on the mountain. He goes down to a very dark scene in the valley. You can learn a lot about God in mountaintop experiences, in glorious experiences with Jesus. But you can also learn a lot in the valley, the real world of challenge, opposition, and what we're going to see in this text Failure, failure. Jesus' lesson for the other nine disciples come as they observe him perform the exorcism of a demon-possessed young boy. Okay. So we're going to look at this story together. We're going to go quickly through it, and then I'll make some lessons at the end. This healing story comes in five scenes. The first one is in verse 14. Look in your Bible there. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not Able. So this story starts with a chaotic scene. That's the first act of the story. 
When Jesus and the three come down, they find the disciples surrounded by a crowd being harassed by the scribes. As soon as Jesus arrives here, the crowds and the scribes, I think, notice him and swarm to him. The crowds can't resist him, and this only adds to the buzz and the chaos of the scene. So Jesus asks the scribes, what are you arguing about with the disciples? But the, the scribes don't even have time to answer before a man. A father interjects. The father wanted the nine disciples to heal his demon-possessed boy. See, his son suffered from a severe form of demon possession that brought all kinds of physical threats to the child. So the, the son and the father needed help. Instead of helping, however, the text says, if you saw at the end there very climactically, it says, the disciples were not able. Here, these words, were not able, are based on a very strong word in the original. In chapter 2 of Mark, this word was used to describe those who are healthy and whole and who don't need a physician. They're able, they're whole. In Mark chapter 5, nothing was strong enough to bind the man with the legion of demons. And so the father's comments here in our text means that the disciples weren't strong to help. They were not whole, they weren't healthy enough to do this. And that should be surprising to us if we're reading Mark's gospel. If you're reading through this gospel, you see on other occasions, God had given to them the ability to perform uh, exorcisms of demons. But in this case, they just can't get it done. And so uh, Jesus comes down and he comes into this valley to find crowds swarming, scribes arguing, disciples failing, and a father pleading. That's act one, the chaotic scene. That leads to the initial response. Look in your Bibles at verses 19 and 20. It says, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Can you imagine this? This happened today? You saw this? Jesus' response in verse 19 comes first. He starts with an opening exclamation. He says, you're a faithless generation. I think likely speaking to everyone gathered around him. He then asks two questions. How long am I to be with you? How long can I bear with you? And then he gives a command, a simple command uh, to, to them. Bring him to me. So the crowds immediately respond and they bring the boy to him. But that's when the demon initially responds. As soon as the demon is in the presence of this man, Jesus, he violently affects the boy. The demon must know, I believe, that Jesus is about ready to bind the strong man again, like was described in Mark chapter 3. The reaction of the demon here, by the way, coordinates very well with the reaction of the man in Mark 5 who had a legion, he had thousands of demons inside of him. Remember this? Mark chapter 5, as soon as Jesus gets off the boat, the demon-possessed the, the demon man, the demoniac, comes running to him, screeching. He falls then helpless at the feet of Jesus. 
You see, demons don't like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is the initial response of the demon. He throws the boy into convulsion, throws him on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. But that's when the action slows down significantly. Things have been moving very quickly so far. But in verses 21 through 24, we have an important discussion. I want you to look closely at this, please. Verses 21 through 24 in your Bible. It says, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water in order to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Powerful response from the father here. And so these four verses, we have an important discussion. As I said, again, the action slows down here, and you have this discussion. This miracle is found in two other Gospels, and neither of those Gospels records this discussion. Yet Mark wants to make something huge out of this, wants to emphasize something very important here. As we uh, come into this, we might ask, why is Jesus taking so much time here? I mean, the boy is laying on the ground, foaming at the mouth. Why doesn't he quickly move to heal the boy? Why does he ask so many questions? I mean, he's not a doctor. Why is Jesus doing all of this stuff? Why does he need to know all this stuff? Well, I think the answer is Mark wants to show you Jesus is in control of the situation completely. And he does it so this way, so that the father can explain the gravity of the situation. I mean, this is not just like a little demon possession. I mean, this has afflicted the boy for years and years and years. So bad that when the boy is walking by the fire, a fire, the demon tries to throw him in. This is severe demon oppression. And I think the conversation is also here so that Jesus could emphasize something that we all need to hear today. He emphasizes the value and importance of faith and prayer. And we'll see that as we move along. Jesus asks some questions that lead the father to respond in two ways. First, the father describes the demon's hold on the boy. It's afflicted him since he was a child. Then the father asks for help. He's not content to just describe the child's medical history. But he pleads for help. I think he does what any father with a boy like this would do. Any good father. He pleads for help. And did you notice he identifies with the boy's plight? It's not, Lord, Lord help him. He's like, Lord, help us. Help us. If you can do anything, help us. Well, Jesus' answer is verse 23. Okay, so we're, we're tracking in our Bibles, right? Because we love the text of Scripture. Because it, it reveals to us things about Jesus. Verse 23. Jesus first answers this way. He, he gives these three words. If you can. Okay, you see that in verse 23? If you can. Can. Okay. What does that mean? And what is the point that he's making here? 
Well, first of all, did you notice that those are the words that the Father had just used with Jesus up in uh, verse 22, in the middle of the verse? The Father said, if you can do anything, help us. Okay, now, when Jesus replies, if you can, there are actually two ways you can take this. And depending on what kind of Bible you have in front of you, they may have done it differently. And there's different punctuation you can put at the end of if you can. Some translations like the ESV that I'm reading or the New American Standard put an exclamation point after the words if you can. It's if you can. It's like Jesus is suggesting or pushing the responsibility for healing back on the Father. If you can. It's pointing his finger back at him. The Father must have faith in Jesus. Okay, so the way my ESV that I'm reading for here today, I think, interprets this very first phrase is Jesus is responding to the Father's request by calling the Father to faith. And the effect of putting that exclamation point here is to say something like this. What do you mean if I can? You must do something. You must have faith if you can. Now, other translations take this a little differently, like the New International Version. And they would put a question mark after the three words. Okay, see, so I know this is, this is difficult Sunday morning, but are you following? Okay, good. If you can, question mark. If you can, Jesus asks. Ben Witherington, a commentator, explains this well. He says, Jesus takes the if as a sort of honor challenge. Jesus' response is astonishment that anyone would question his ability. If you can, I mean, what do you mean? If I can. The father did not say, if you want, he said, if you can. Right? And that's different. This is not really a faith statement by the father here. By the way, this is the way I prefer to take it. Perhaps the dad had grown skeptical about Jesus's ability. Maybe the disciples' failure with the demon is stripping this father of all hope. So Jesus asked him, if you can. Then Jesus explains something. He says, all things are possible for him who believes. And by this point, we know that he's definitely turning it to, to talk about the father. And he's calling the father to have faith. This, more, this, boy's, this man's boy can be healed if this man will put his faith in Jesus. But the little phrase, all things are possible for the one who believes, is a little difficult, right? When we stop and we think about it. Like we're in the middle of this narrative, things are going on. It's all things are possible for the one who believes. And we hear that, and, and, but then we begin to think about it a little bit. And so I want to I explain that phrase to you. So I want us to think about that one for just a little bit. Now I'll start by explaining how not to take this. I want to look at a false view that affects most of us here in the room. Again, this is a wrong way to see this, a, a way this text is abused even today. I think many preachers and Christians proclaim that faith is the way to a healing or a miracle and then they put pressure on people to conjure up more faith for a healing. 
I have people in the congregation that I serve as an elder in Virginia Beach who have been influenced by that theology. I have a woman whose husband had cancer and she was told by her elders in another church, if you have faith, God will heal your husband. But then he died. And so she was left the process. Did I not have enough faith? And so we, we look at this phrase, all things are possible for him who believes. Think of the apostle Paul who had his thorn in the flesh. On three occasions, didn't he pray that God would take it away from him? Okay. But did he on the, on the two occasions before the third prayer? He didn't take it away immediately, right? So what was the problem? Did Paul not have enough faith? Well, maybe it was Paul. He could be sinful, right? What about Jesus? Remember Jesus in the garden? Pastor Lucas talked about this in the garden. He prayed, if it is possible, I pray, take this cup or may this cup pass from me. But the Father answers descriptively through his, through his answer. You basically get the answer, it's not possible. It's not that Jesus just didn't have enough faith, is it? Could I bring my grandmother back from the dead if I had faith? Could I change my graying hair if I just have enough faith? Could I heal my child from sickness if I just have enough faith? No, I can't control any of these things with faith. It's a false view to say that conjuring up more faith will bring whatever a believer might want. And so we look at the phrase again, all things are possible for him who believes. What does it mean? We, we start by proclaiming this, and this is, I think, a right view, or one way to look at it. We start by proclaiming that God can do whatever he wants or desires to do in his will. That is, he has unlimited ability to proclaim his will. Do you believe that about God? God has unlimited ability. How many of you would say amen to that? Amen. amen. All right. God has unlimited ability to perform his will. The phrase, all things are possible, is used by Jesus again in Mark 10, verse 27, where he explains that God can do whatever he pleases within his good will. All things are possible with God. That's how it's used in Mark 10, 27. And so as we're looking at Mark 9 here, um, whatever we believe about this chapter, we should not put limits on God to say that he's unable to do something or to truly help someone in his goodwill. He can help any person that he wants. Yet sometimes God does not intervene because it does not fit within his comprehensive plan for the entire created order. In other words, God does have unlimited power, but he functions according to his sovereign will. There was someone commentating on this passage, William Lane, and he described it this way. He said, when, when faith confronts the demon in this passage, God's omnipotence is its sole assurance and God's sovereignty 
is its only restriction. In prayer, God's power is our sure assistance, our soul assurance. And God's sovereignty is the only thing that will limit him answering that in those ways. And so with this understanding in mind, we go back to the passage. All things are possible for one who believes in Jesus because Jesus has unlimited ability to help. And so here Jesus presses the skepticism of this man in verse 24. He says, the father uh, then immediately replies, if you're looking here, verse 24, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I love that reply in a certain sense. It seems at the same time to be a conscious decision to trust Jesus and an admission of his human weakness. Can't you relate to this? Jesus turns it back. What do you mean if I can? And the father says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. A Puritan once wrote, he said, there are many things that afflict and grieve the people of God from without, but all these outward troubles are nothing compared to the troubles that come from within. There are many inward troubles that make us groan. Puritans were really good at analyzing themselves. So you got all those outward troubles? Yeah, 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 yeah. But there are these inner troubles that make us groan as followers of Jesus Christ. And the truth is about the Christian faith, about the Christian faith as we live it, that it involves this battle against our own unbelief. Well, let's learn from this man's impulse here. I don't think it's a bad thing to say this to God in prayer. I think it's a good thing. To say this, Lord, I believe, I do believe, but help my faith to humbly admit your need of God. One of my favorite songs in all the world is, Lord, I need you. We sang it as a congregation the day I was installed as a pastor seven years ago at Colonial Baptist Church. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. I think it's a good thing for us to go to God in prayer. Say, Lord, I do believe that you can work in this situation with my family member. I believe that you can work in this situation with my friend. I believe you can do this thing on behalf of, uh, in the lives of our pastors at church, in the lives of our congregation. But help me to believe more. Help my unbelief. Well, that's when things pick up in the story again in verses 25 through 27. And we see the powerful miracle. By the way, I'm glad that Jesus didn't say, nope, can't help you. I just wanted that first part, I believe. No. He doesn't say anything, but he moves to help the man. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The account of the miracle here is quite short. Jesus gives two commands. Come out of him and never go into him again. And the demon is forced to obey. 
Now, the effect of the exorcism of this demon from the boy and the child is, is so bad that people think he's dead. And Jesus then takes him by the hand, lifts him up, and the miracle is complete. Okay, but the story isn't done. If you're looking in your Bible, there's still a little part of this. There's Act 5, the last two verses. And I think these two verses are placed in an emphatic position. They are summative to tell you why this story is here and what Jesus would have us learn today. So look at verses 28 and 29, what I call the private instruction of the disciples It says, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, you following? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything, but what do you have in your Bible? Prayer. My prayer. The disciples want to know why they failed, why they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus gives a simple answer, okay? But I want to give you three important statements about his answers. If you're taking notes, you can write these down, think about these, pray about these, see if you agree, and I think uh, they're helpful. And these three, I think, come in like an ascending order of importance for me, okay? First statement, Jesus seems to teach here that there are differing degrees of demonic opposition. We can see this in verse 29, right? When he says, this kind those words, differing degrees of demonic opposition. Jesus understands that this demon, he understands him to be a more powerful force maybe than other demons. Now, Jesus' statement here about prayer does not mean the disciples shouldn't normally pray. Okay. I think it's a good practice anytime you're performing an exorcism to pray. Okay, because we are not depending on our own strength in this one at all. So it's always a good practice, but this type of demon makes it especially obvious that they need to pray. They need to ask God for help and strength. That leads to my second statement, okay, about Jesus' reply here. Jesus' main point in this whole text and in this private instruction is to emphasize the need for prayer. You see, the disciples were weak because they were weak in prayer. The disciples were unable because they were weak in prayer. Jesus teaches here that prayer alone was necessary to remove the worst kind of demons. Now, some translations, English translations of scripture add a little something here. Some translations like the King James will say, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Okay. And in full transparency, there are a few Greek manuscripts that stand behind the Bible that have prayer and fasting. Okay. But I think the ESV is right because most of the manuscripts just say prayer. Just say prayer. And if you remember a little bit before this in Mark's gospel, the scribes were debating things and they're arguing about the disciples. And they come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples fast? Remember Jesus' reply? Basically, it's this. They don't need to fast now because I'm here. The time is coming when they'll need to fast when I'm gone. And so it would be very unusual for Jesus to take the disciples apart just after that and say, you know what? Your real problem was you weren't fasting. <laughs> 
And you're like, Did, didn't you just say we don't have to fast when you're still on earth? Perhaps there's some early copyists, you know, they're going through and they're copying down the Bible and they're writing it out. This kind only, you know, in Greek, only comes out through prayer. Seems too simple. And fasting. Jesus wants to emphasize the importance, the value of prayer. Okay. Now, the third statement I encourage you to write down about his reply here is that Jesus' answer, this kind only comes out through prayer, is different than the parallel account found in Matthew 17. Keep your finger here. Flip over to Matthew 17, please. Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. And he's describing the same story of a Matthew is, the gospel writer Matthew in this first gospel, about the demon possessed boy and what happens. And he has the same private interaction, but a different answer. Look at Matthew 17, verse 19. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Does that sound familiar? Same question. Verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here in it to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. In Matthew, the disciples asked the same question, but Jesus's answer is that they were unable because of their little faith. So which is it? Is it because they had little faith or because they did not pray? And the answer is? You know what the answer is? Yes. Both are true. When we pray, it's because we believe. We believe. Not praying can be an indication of a lack of faith or little faith. Little prayer normally indicates little faith. You see, prayerlessness is a form of unbelief. As we're thinking of the passage here, think about the disciples when they hear this. Do you think the disciples intentionally thought or said, I don't need Jesus for this one. I, got I, I don't need God for this one. I think the answer is probably not. This is probably something they instinctively did. They just rose up trying to help the boy, something unintentional. But I think what's happened here is they've grown cold or self-confidence, so they do not pray. And you know, the same can be true of us as well. I've been a pastor now at Colonial Baptist Church in Virginia Beach for seven years. And uh, as I was reflecting on the sermon, I, I remember my first few weeks I was there. Everything petrified me. I had never been a senior pastor before. I had served in ministry in various capacities, but I'd never been a, like a main preaching pastor. 
And so as I went to this church, you know, larger church or medium-sized church or whatever, everything I did, I was paranoid. Like, I remember going to the hospital for the first time. I had no idea where to park. Didn't know where to go. It was this very confusing hospital, three hostels together. I got lost several times throughout. I, I couldn't find the person. Okay, and I remember when I'm driving into the parking garage, I'm like, Lord, help me. I need you. Like, I don't know where to park. So I'm walking around the hospital. Like, I can't find the room. And then as I got to the bed of this person, this person was dying, right? I'm like, Lord, I, I, don't, I, I haven't been by a lot of bedsides where someone's dying. What do I do? What scripture can I use? How do I pray? I spent a lot of time praying this first few weeks. I remember going, doing a funeral for the first time with military honors. We're in military city, right? We're at the largest naval base in the world. And they do all this stuff at funerals. And so I'm like, you know, I, I really didn't have much experience with that. And there's like, there are people blowing trumpets. There's things, there's flags folding and stuff. And I'm like, when am I on? So I'm asking God, Lord, I need you. I need help. I don't know what to do. First time I taught a member's class. I'd never taught a member's class before. What do you cover in there? Pastor Lucas, I should have asked you. You've been doing it for three years. Right? What, what do you do? What do you cover? And so in those first few weeks, I was just praying a lot. But now, I've been a pastor for seven years. I know something about funerals. I know something about hospitals. I know something about visitation. I can conduct a member's class. And I have to consciously remind myself to pray. What about you? Are there tasks that you used to partake in that used to scare you to death? And so, you pray. Remember when you're first getting married? For some of you who are married, you're scared to death. Like, how do I, how do I lead? How do I, how do I submit to? How do I honor in this marriage? Like, what do I do? And so you pray. For some of you who have children, remember when your first child was born? All right. Uh, some of you, that's something you'll anticipate in the future, perhaps. I remember I was driving home from the hospital like this, about 15 mile an hour. Scared to death. My hands were digging into the steering wheel. Get home. I had forgotten to buckle my child in. It was in West Virginia, though. It was okay. Okay? God was in control. So think about parenting. Like, I have no idea how to parent. Need help. Now, I've been doing it for some time. How about you? Some of you have been parenting for some time. Some of you have been married for some time. And you're not praying about it anymore. And we're like the disciples, aren't we? Well, I got this. It's under control. Some of you used to teach Bible study classes to children. At the beginning, you were just afraid. You were nervous. Praying a lot. But now you've been doing it for years. Less prayer. I think we need to learn from the disciples here. In this text, God gives us good reason why prayer should be a priority to us. And here it is spiritual ministry that truly helps others demands prayer. Did you get that? Do you believe that? Spiritual ministry that truly or genuinely helps others demands prayer. I think that, the, that is the point that Jesus is answering here. Jesus himself knew this, even as the powerful son of God. Flip over to Mark 1. I'll just read you a few verses in Mark 1. We're just about done, but Mark chapter 1, 
verse 35. Near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Mark 1, 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place. And there he, what? Prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. It's like they're mildly rebuking him. Like, what are you doing out here in the dark? Or now it's light. We've been looking for you for so long. Everyone's looking for you. Even Jesus, the powerful son of God, knew that spiritual ministry that truly helps others demands prayer. It requires it. Yet it's our propensity toward, in our propensity toward sin and self-dependence, we often neglect prayer. In a recent study of Christians in prayer, massive study, it was discovered that the average adult Christian in America spends approximately one minute a day in prayer. It's not a priority for us. But it must be. Every Sunday morning as I'm preparing my sermon, final preps, I get a notice from Apple on my phone that gives me my average screen time for the week. So distracting. I'm like trying to pray, right, and study. It tells me how much time I average per day on my phone. My determination this year is to try to spend as much time or more time in prayer than I do on my phone. If we compared your screen time to your prayer time, what would we learn? Do you pray? Do you pray with other believers in this congregation? Do you get together and pray? If you're married, do you pray with your spouse? If you have children, do you pray with your family? And do you realize that spiritual ministry that helps others demands prayer? If a spiritual advisor assessed your strengths and weaknesses as a Christian, might he or she make this recommendation to you? You really need to pray more. It's not a priority for you. If so, repent and commit to change by God's grace through his enablement in this, in this year. And if that's true of you, perhaps do this. Rearrange your schedule or parts of your schedule for the next three nights to come learn more from Jesus how to pray and why it's a priority. And pray with other brothers and sisters here because prayer is demanded for ministry that truly helps others. This time I invite you to just bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to give you just a moment before we leave to reflect upon God's word.
what it means for you today. In the auditorium this morning, there are two types of people, two basic types of people. There are believers, those who believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, who believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died and that he was raised on the third day is the only way to be delivered from their sins. If that's you here today, if you're a believer, I would encourage you to take this moment to truly inspect your heart, distinguish your own prayer life, and pray. You can pray like that, Father. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or you could pray, Lord, I pray. Help me to pray more. But then there are others here today new to church or perhaps been attending for some time, but you've never believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and turned from your sins. You, you might be listening to what I said today from Jesus and say, that's really moving, it's really powerful. That's, I think what I really need to do is pray more. But here's the reality. If you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to be delivered from your sins, you can pray all you want. It's not going to help you. It's not going to do anything for you. The Bible is clear that all people are sinners and that sin condemns us to death and it destroys our relationship with our creator God so that we are under his wrath. We're under his just wrath. And that wrath means one day when we die, unless we turn to Christ, we'll go to a place called hell. Jesus himself described hell in Matthew. Gospel of Matthew says this is a place where the fire never dies and the corrupting worm never dies. He said it's a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. If you're here today and you've never believed on the name of Jesus Christ for deliverance from your sin, I would encourage you with the book, what, what the, the Word of God says in Acts 16 believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you believe on Jesus in such a way that you confess your sins and turn from your sins, you can be accepted by him at this moment. You can privately pray to him. You could, you could do this this afternoon. You could pray to God and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. I know my sin means consequences and consequences of hell, but Jesus died in my place to, to save me from my sins. I believe in that, and I turn to you. I encourage you to do that this day. Let us pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your holy word we're thankful, Lord, that it is sufficient. It's everything we need. And today, I'm sure you, through your spirit, have used your word to convict hearts. Your living word to show us where we don't measure up. I pray for believers. I pray that as they evaluate this new year, 
today would say, by your grace, God, I want to pray. I want to pray more with other believers. I want to pray more with my family. I want to pray with, with you. And God, I also pray for an unbeliever. Perhaps some have decided today to trust in Jesus alone. We'd be so thankful for that, Lord. Perhaps there are others who still are in unbelief. I pray that Jesus would be too much for them this week. He would just be too much. So unlike every other prophet. So unlike every other person. Son of God, come to earth as a sacrifice for their sins. I pray that you'd show them that this week. Convict them of sin and make them alive through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.